And one of the lessons I think for young counselors to understand is, is just preserve the record. Proceed with your line of questioning. Don't be distracted by the difficult, ornery judge who seeks to intimidate you. Just set your course and never stray from it. And, and the line of questioning that I used, I'm sorry, the line of submission that I used was, may I continue on? Steven Skurka is one of Canada's most well-known criminal defense lawyers. In this episode, he discusses the importance of preparation, courage, and a willingness to think differently when advocating. In addition to invaluable tips of advocacy, Stephen reminisces on the time he spent on high-profile cases such as R versus Brown, racial profiling of Toronto Raptor D. Brown, Her Majesty and Mark Phillips, marijuana-induced psychosis, and his own legal struggles and redemption in the case of Jacobson versus Skirka. Stephen's passion for criminal law is profound, unique, and inspiring. His expertise in media and advocacy translated well into his own publications, including his most recent book, Tilted, The Trials of Conrad Black, and his canonical text on jury selection, Jury Selection in Canadian Law. Before we begin this episode with Stephen Skirka, I wanted to say thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. I would encourage our listeners to take the time to look into LexisNexis's latest initiative geared towards solo and small practitioners. Their solo and small e-brief brings a compilation of articles, insights, and other valuable resources for solo and small practitioners. You can find a link to this newsletter by visiting our homepage and clicking on the legal podcast link, or by simply Googling LexisNexis solo and small e-brief. This e-brief is a very valuable service, especially for those who are outside of larger firms looking for valuable tips for their practice. And with that, I bring you Steven Skirka. Well, I got into law because uh, I just had a natural affinity for trial work. I knew that I wanted to be a criminal lawyer very early on, watching the great movies, the Atticus Finch heroes. And I also have a prevailing sense of curing injustice. And I think that was infused in me from a very early age. And criminal law was obviously the vehicle where I could best demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. And just on that point, and and one of the most famous cases you litigated, um, and it really shaped a lot of Canadian jurisprudence, was the D. Brown case. And I think that'd be a great way to segue into um, just advocacy in general. So can you tell us about that case and why it was so important in Canadian law, and then also what lessons you've learned from it in particular? Probably, uh, in my mind, the most important contribution I've made to, to shape the law, and, I, and I'm very proud of it. I was defending uh, D. Brown, former member of the Toronto Raptors. He was known as Three Point D. He'd won the, the slam dunk competition as a rookie with the Boston Celtics. And he was a black man stopped driving a fancy car uh, by a police officer on the Down Valley Parkway. Ultimately, the grounds are formed. He's charged uh, with two drinking and driving-related offenses. And my d- defense was exclusively charter-related based on, on Section 9 that D. Brown was arbitrarily detained by the officer and that the evidence that uh, flowed from that should be excluded under 24.2 of the charter. 
And, and it, it seemed like a conventional case at the start. And then once I pursued it, um, I realized that this was a case of racial profiling. And there was no doubt in my mind. There were a number of indicia. I, I checked the tape uh, where the officer recited uh, the notes, the salient points of his notes for the breath technician to for the grounds to, to, to make the breath demand. And it appeared that they didn't conform when he was speaking on the video to conform to the notes that I was reading. And my position, which I advanced, and, and it's related in the Court of Appeal judgment, was that he prepared a second set of notes when he, once he realized that he had this prominent athlete and enhanced the reasons for stopping him as opposed to initial set of notes. He'd, th there were other reasons. He'd looked in the car before, you know, a host of other reasons. So I brought the, the uh, constitutional challenge, set two days aside for the trial with the concurrence of the judge at the pretrial, and embarked on a trial where from the first minute and a half of a two-day trial, I, it was clear to me, it was transparent that the judge uh, was against me, that, and he had a pronounced distaste for the defense uh, that I was advancing. And so, just so our listeners are clear, and I presume that was the case here, when one files a charter application, the grounds for the exclusion of evidence is set out in an application prior to. So the judge would have already known an allegation of racial profiling prior to even hearing from evidence. I, I made it abundantly clear because I didn't want there to be any suggestion of masking it in any way or camouflaging it. It was there for the judge. He knew exactly what was coming, Sean. You're exactly right. So it wasn't just a question of a mystery what this case was going to be about. And your Although, view is within a minute, you, you, the back, his back was up and, and the battle started. And pronounced distaste. And it was probably the most difficult trial. There actually, if you read the Court of Appeal judgment of Justice uh, Morden, you can actually, there are actually passages of the exchanges, ornery exchanges uh, between me and the judge. And, and one of the lessons I think for young counsel to understand is, is just preserve the record. Proceed with your line of questioning. Don't be distracted by the difficult, ornery judge who seeks to intimidate you. Just set your course and never stray from it. And, and the line of questioning that I used, I'm sorry, the line of submission that I used was, may I continue, Your Honor? I would indicate the reasons why I was pursuing question. When you say to a judge, may I continue, that judge has a decision to make. They can say, no, you may not. And then, of course, then there's a fairness of trial issue. Or they can say, go ahead. And that's exactly uh, what this judge did. And so uh, I, I raised this. And I knew that I was go going to lose the trial. And so really, I was in, in this difficult position where simply I was trying to preserve the record and trying to win the case on appeal, which is never, never an optimal position for trial counsel. But this was thrust upon me. It wasn't something of my own choosing. And um, it was so bad that by the end of the case and the inevitable conviction that followed, the judge turned to me and said that it might be appropriate, and the language was stronger, for my client to apologize to the police officer, you know, given the allegations that I had made. And, and I... Just so, so everyone understands, what the judge is asking here is for an apology from your client right. to the police officer making the allegation of racial profiling. Right. And understand this, and you know, every lawyer will, will feel this palpably. The notion that I advance properly a constitutional challenge 
vigorously defended on proper grounds, and at the end of it, a judge has the audacity to turn to counsel and ask that his or her client should apologize for bringing that. And I, I can tell you there isn't a moment in my life where I had to control myself more than that moment because there were many things that I wanted to say and I didn't say them. I simply said, my client will not apologize to the officer. And when you read the judgment, I, I think that that, more than any feature of the case, influenced the court to allow the appeal. More than any fact, any circumstance, any submission, any exchange, it was that. Because ultimately the court finds bias. It, it wasn't a fairness of trial issue. It, it, was, it was a finding of bias, and that's why a new trial was ordered. But of course, in the decision, why, why it is so important, a landmark decision, is the, the court, first of all, acknowledges the existence of racial profiling, which was something James Stewart, on behalf of the Attorney General, conceded. And, and secondly, and this, in any case where race, racial profiling emerges as a, as a issue or a potential defense, you cannot prove it by direct evidence. You're never gonna have an officer acknowledge that they stopped someone because of the color of their skin. It's impossible. It's not gonna happen. So the, the court recognized that and indicated that is always going to be proven uh, through circumstantial evidence. And, and the other thing that, that I thought was very important from the decision, I'm just trying to highlight, Sean, just some of the key factors, it's worthwhile reading it, is that, that it isn't necessarily a product of overt racism that racial profiling can be a subconscious factor, and I think that it largely was, and that's what I contended in this case. I actually said, I'm not alleging this officer was a racist. It operated subconsciously because of his, the factors that he took into account when he stopped Dee Brown. He didn't do it because he was blatantly racist. I never would allege that. Now, there, are, there may be the odd officer who you can make that comment, given some comments that he makes to the, the person when he's arrested. So, so those are, are three highlights, and they, percolate through this decision and now in any decision where racial profiling uh, is brought forward in a Section 9 challenge under the Charter, uh, you will see them repeated like a chorus uh, in every case. So what was really uh, interesting and encouraging to defense lawyers from this judgment is giving the legitimacy of bringing a complaint uh, of that nature. And that said, it's 2019 and even still, you have to really be willing to go for, as you put it, a bumpy ride if you're going to be pursuing you know, this. There, there's a passage in Justice Moore's decision that I urge upon counsel or consider bringing, and it's this. It's wrong and dangerous to bring a false application of racial profiling, but equally to not bring it in a case where it exists is tantamount to the same thing. In other words, we can't just let a police officer get away with it. We have the recognition, the principle, if you have the evidentiary grounds, pursue it. And at least Dee Brown gives you the comfort level to know that you have the Court of Appeal in Ontario in a very strong, sweeping decision, giving you at least the, the wind of support to move forward. What would you say to a younger lawyer? You know, you're Steven Skirka, you're representing a Raptor. Um, what about a young lawyer, um, second year call, who's decided to bring a racial profile and it's very clear to them this is what happened and they're met with that same sort of a pushback from the court? Okay. The, the first thing that I would suggest to young counsel is to meet with senior counsel and just go through it 
to, to get a sense that they're moving in the right direction, right? And, and to get some ideas. And I think once, once that happens, and you know that you're in the right, you just plunge forward, you bring the application, and as I say, don't mask it in the notice, bring it forward and do it. And I think the key, though, is to make it clear, just as I said earlier, that you're not alleging overt racism on the part of the officer, that it is subconscious, so that it doesn't get into that messy or murky area where it becomes this ad hominem attack on the police officer. So since we're on the topic of advocacy, I always ask, um, you know, is, is there one um, inscription that you have on your desk that guides your advocacy style in the cases you do beyond? You know, I've, do, I've done a lot of trial work with Marie Hennon, a lot of trials together with her, and I know everyone uh, knows what a fabulous lawyer Marie is. And, and, and people point to her forensic skills, her cross-examination, her judgment, but I will tell you that she has one skill beyond any other, um, and, and it's something that I aspire to as well, and that is preparation. I have never seen a lawyer as prepared as Marie is when she embarks on a trial. And, and I also set out with the same goal. So that when you walk into a courtroom, uh, you know that you have a command of the case. You believe, you don't say it. Uh, that's the difference between confidence and arrogance, one you think and one you say. <laughs> but yeah. you, you believe that you have a better command of that case than anyone in that courtroom. And so that you have a, a sense of approach, but you know that you can take a sharp term at any point, depending on the development of the evidence. And, and I've had cases where I put my notebook down across examination because of one answer that I've received and I extemporaneously conducted the rest of my cross-examination. You have to be that prepared to do that. You have to have the expert evidence to deal with contentious issues. You have to prepare your cross-examination accordingly. Everything, your submissions. Of course, you don't wait to prepare your submissions until the end of the trial. You're gonna to have to shape them to some extent based on the evidence, but you know precisely where you're gonna go with your submissions, whether it's jury or, or a judge alone trial before you even have the first witness testify. So let me ask you, um Preparation can mean many things, and preparation to a lawyer listening to this might think, well, I've read the disclosure four times, but I don't think that's what you're referring to when you refer to someone like yourself or Marie Hennon. So what do you have to do beyond the case? Is there a story you could tell me to sort of illustrate what we're talking about? Let's just talk about disclosure, all right, because under Stinchcomb, we get it. When I get disclosure, I look at it, I have a bifurcated approach. The first thing I do is the obvious one. I see what I received. But the second approach is to say, what have I not received? So always approach disclosure in that, two, in that two-pronged approach, because in many instances you will not, and I'm not alleging bad faith here, I wanna be clear about that, or what, what are the areas I need to ask for legitimately that aren't covered by this? What, what flows from the disclosure that I receive? Obviously in the odd case there will be uh, an issue of malafides. But so, so I suppose you start with that. And then, and then beyond that, uh, what can I do to advance what is the defense? By this time, you will have met with your client. And what is the evidence that I can posit to advance my client's defense? And how do I impugn the Crown's case? And, and, and so you start with that umbrella, and then you move forward from that. Is there something, you know, for example... Um just before we started the podcast, um, you were saying how it's it's advisable to even attend the scene. And um, could you tell us that story? Because I think that really illustrates uh, what 
um, what we're talking about here. Right. I, I believe in indefatigably in, in preparation. And one of the aspects of preparation is to go to the scene of the alleged crime. And so I was defending a police officer charged with sexual assault of a, of a teenager from a, run, from a group home who'd run away. And she alleged that in his police car, at a, at a precise location that she could describe, the street location, he had sexually assaulted her. And so I remember taking my student out, Mitch, and I said, we're going to, you know, this alleged crime scene. He said, fine, but we're doing it at three in the morning. Three in the morning, he said, why? Because <laughs> I wanted to replicate the circumstances of what allegedly happened. So we went to the scene. It was in East Toronto, three in the morning. We sat in the car and instantly we were overwhelmed by the smell of bread. And it turned out at a block from there, because I investigated, it was the Wonder Bread factory. You couldn't sit there with just this over, and it was a wonderful smell, but it was this most overpowering smell. And and the, the teenager hadn't mentioned it. Now, it's not determinative. You know, the crowd can say, you know, that given the circuit, but it would be hard to believe, you know, that you wouldn't have smelled it given the power. And I had someone to testify about about the Wonder Bread factory existing at the time and, and, and so on, and the, and the jury acquitted. Whether or not that was a factor, we'll never know. So, so that's the kind of, of assiduous preparation that I believe in. Beyond preparation, I notice in your cases, and including Dee Brown, is you have the courage to raise issues that haven't been raised before. And I don't know how comfortable you feel discussing it, but there was a case recently, a very uh, well-known case of Mark Phillips, um, who was a lawyer um, and was charged with uh, attacking a family. And, and that, for the first time, as far as I'm aware, um, there was an, a defense, essentially, of psychosis induced by marijuana. Um, and that's sort of what I'm, I'm getting at is I'd never heard of that before. What, whether it's that case in particular or cases in general, what does it take to think outside the box? And Sure. And I can talk about this case because it's in the public realm. It sure. was in the Globe and Mail and it was covered widely. So I had a 37-year-old lawyer with no history, criminal history at all, charged with the most bizarre crime of attacking a family in St. Thomas with racial overtones, disgusting comments made, all captured on a cell phone video, and he's seen approaching them with a baseball bat. He uses the baseball bat uh, to attack the 13-year-old child. The father steps in front and he breaks two ribs. And the judge, when when he sentenced my client, said if he'd found the racial overtones uh, to be the true motivation, he would have sent him to the penitentiary, Mm two-year penitentiary sentence. So I had this this confounding mystery, and I I, uh, investigated it, had the best forensic psychiatrist that I could find, Peter, Dr. Peter Collins, and who met with him, and then ultimately came to the conclusion that there was this uh, cannabis-induced or marijuana-induced psychosis uh, that was operative at the time and that was, was attributable to his actions. And so I then did the empirical research and, and found it and had a body of research, came forward, and ultimately my client pled guilty to assault bodily harm, received a conditional discharge, which was a, re- a remarkable result. And so I was forced to think outside the box here, because if I didn't think outside the box, my client was in very dire, obviously in dire straits of a significant custodial sense. So. I suppose what I would say is never be bound by convention. Always think outside the box. I, I was one of the first to use 
computer animation in a case and I remember using it successfully uh, to show uh, that my client w was innocent and the judge relied on it. So, so and, and what I would do is go to conferences, I would study what, what lawyers were doing, I would look to the Americans, they have a, they're very advanced using technological evidence and um, PowerPoint and everything else. So I always was was careful to go to the NACDL conferences, National Associate of Criminal Defense Lawyers, try to learn from them. So always be aware of the latest, uh, I don't know, the latest practice that you can use in your own case. I want to return to the U.S. because there's a couple uh, topics of interest. But before we do, uh, just a couple follow-up questions, practical um, advice for the lawyers listening. Um, and I think um, perhaps the most recent case we discussed is a good example of this. How do you um, handle um, clients? Uh, how do you interview them? How do you handle difficult clients um, in cases that are very high profile? You know, what essentially is your workflow? Well, you, you have to be very careful to get uh, proper instructions and uh, a material, obviously, a material decisions. But I've, I found that, that generally in the high-profile cases, uh, my clients were very easy to deal with. The, the greatest problem I found, with, particularly with entertainers and athletes, is the entourage, the, the people who want to stand between you and your client. Funny story, I, I had a baseball player, uh, Felix Heredia, who was a member of the Blue Jays. He ultimately got traded to the Yankees, and, and I, I just couldn't meet him. Uh, it was just impossible for me to get him to Toronto to meet him. And so ultimately, I had to go down to spring training and um, meet him down in Florida and take him aside and, and actually do the meeting. Um, and uh, But I, I find I find that in, in these high-profile cases, the clients generally are, are very accommodating, very nice, very concerned about uh, their liberty. I mean, Dee Brown's a perfect example. You know, he didn't really didn't matter too much to him whether he's found guilty of impaired driving or not in terms of you know his overall life and success wasn't going to impinge on his liberty didn't need to have a license to drive a car but he he pursued the matter on basis of principle and I was always very impressed with Dee Brown I really just have high regard for the way he pursued this issue uh, he felt as as a as a black man that he was not going to let uh the judge get away with that and, and pursued the matter in the court of appeal. Moving beyond the client then, when you're dealing with high profile cases with the media, I can see that you're a lawyer who has a very thoughtful and measured approach um, to addressing the media. Uh, I notice in some cases it's very restrained, um, if, non, if not non-existent. In other cases, uh, it's, it seems to be very overt and uh, planned. So uh, what tips would you give to lawyers um, dealing with the media? And I should, I should say, um, cr give you credit where credit's due, and I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I attended um, a seminar that you presented for the Advocate Society on dealing with the media, and I have to say it was one of the most um, memorable uh, CPDs I've ever attended. And um, essentially, what I remember from that is um, no comment isn't acceptable. So Absolutely not. <laughs> Well, the first, first starting point is, unlike some of our American counterparts, we, we fight our case in the courtroom. And first, we do it because it, it's proper professional responsibility. And secondly, because if we don't, it's very counterproductive. Judges are not very happy. Uh, and they become aware if you start arguing your case in the media. So that's the, the first important point. The second important point I make is, is, is if you have a, have a client 
who is asserting his or her innocence and they're charged, uh, it's incumbent on you to say something about that at the very outset to counter that. I mean, it doesn't have to be very much, uh, but it seems to me that you want at least, you're the face, the client can't speak at that point. So it falls on counsel to say something short, snappy, strong, you know, vigorously contesting innocence, but obviously more elegantly stated, but that's the central point to make. And at the end of the case, think carefully about what you're going to say. Never get out there and just answer questions, as, you know, to use a cliche, on the fly. So, you know, for example, in the Phillips case, I had a case where I was very concerned the general public would feel uh, that my client, given his status, you know, he was the grandson of a former mayor of the city of Toronto, a lawyer, somehow received preferential treatment. And so it wasn't just enough that he got a conditional discharge, which was an extraordinary result. Remember, two broken ribs with, with a purported racial overtones. And so the way I thought I would combat that was with one sentence. And this was captured in the front section of the Globe and Mail. And what I, what I said is that this is someone, meaning my client, without any history of discrimination, racism, or violence. Now, when the public hears that, they're going to shake their head and say, well, wait a minute. What did happen here? There must be something else. So in other words, it was a parallel track to what I said in court and what the sentence the judge imposed, and, and it basically fortified that. It, it was something that I thought helped send the right message to the public so they understand it. So, try, so what I'm saying is when you, when you go to the media, don't let them control the message. You control the message. Just because a question's asked doesn't mean the question has to be answered. All right? You don't owe it to the media to answer their question. So just package it and think about it and get your message out and there's nothing to require you to say anything else. The other thing, last point I make with the media is this, uh, be very honest with them. If you say you're gonna walk outside the courtroom with your client, they'll believe you, but don't burn them because if you burn them, you will never be trusted again. And I always believe that it's best to walk out with your, your client, head up high, instruct your client not to say a word, not to look chagrined, not to shake their head based on the questions. Uh, and, and so very carefully educate your client, be sure that they're aware of that and walk out of the courtroom strongly beside them. It's your watch, you're their guardian, you're their legal guardian, and you're beside them, not three steps ahead of them or three steps behind them, right beside them. What would you say to uh, a recent call who happens upon a case of high profile that they didn't realize they show up in bail court and it's, it's known now that this person has committed an assault on someone who's famous or something like that uh, and they're panicking because they know the media is waiting outside. What, what would you recommend well, they do? The one thing I would do, first of all, on a bail hearing, of course, you have the protection of the ban of publication. Sure. So that you can use that to, to educate the media about, you know, they, they can't do a, basically subvert it by asking questions that are on the, on the record already. So, so bail, that's the one thing, of course, that I would say. And, and you, don't, you don't walk out, first of all, you haven't received the disclosure at that point. So you, you can say something, you know, it's a very regular stage and, you, and I'm going to be looking at, you, you just make it clear that your client's just under arrest and you're going to give it vigorous uh, attention. But, but equally, you may have a client who you've met in the cells who's told you that it's absolutely contrived and they're innocent, and you may choose in the circumstance of that case to say something. But be very careful. Mm -hmm. 
be very careful about overstating your case too. You want you don't want to do that. You're better off just saying it's an early stage. Have you ever had the experience of junior lawyers calling you for advice on these things? Sure, and and, and you know, and I'm not unique. Any senior counsel, one of the great strengths of our profession, uh, isn't just its diversity, but it is the fact that senior counsel. You know, lawyers like Brian Greenspan, Brian Heller, Marlis Edward, Marie Hennon, you know, the top lawyers. If you phone them, call them, you know, obviously they're working on a case. They're going to tell you they're not available. They'll take your call. They'll help you. They'll try to guide you. And if they can't, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, to contact this lawyer. And I've done that. And I've met with lawyers to talk about cases. I would encourage, I would encourage young counsel to do that. So let's talk about your role as a legal analyst. Um, a lot of people recognize you from television, um, probably most prominently in the Conrad Black case. You uh, traveled to the United States. You were essentially full-time legal coverage through CTV. Uh, tell me how that came to be and, and, what, um, and what you learned yeah, from I, it. Yeah, I remember there was really no legal analyst, uh, or certainly not a national legal analyst in the country. And uh, I was contacted by Canada AM, the, the morning show for CTV, and asked if I would audition. I did abysmally. You know, I'd give myself a generously a five out of ten. I remember it was about the Bernardo case, but I don't remember more than that. But fortunately, they were charitable and they gave me a second chance. And and I I felt that there was a real void. There's a, a real gulf between the public perception of how our administration justice operates. Because I am, you know, generally very proud of of what what transpires daily and the men and women who defend cases in this country. Uh, and uh, I thought that the meat that needed to be a legal analyst to, to bridge that gulf. And of course, I'd been watching the O.J. Simpson case and watched people who I admired, like Greta Van Susteren and Jeffrey Tubin, and saw the way that they did it. And, and certainly, I, I, followed, I followed that model. And, uh, and in a matter of four minutes, you have to encapsulate the features of a case, provide your own legal analysis, give your own opinion. I was never shy, I'm not shy by nature, uh, about stating my opinion, whether a judge got it right or not, but obviously always respectfully. And uh, and then of course it led to the, I, I think just the explosion, which is <laughs> the only way I could put it of, of covering the Conrad Black trial, where I remember I was doing 15 interviews a day starting at five o'clock in the morning given the time difference and it was just probably one of the most grueling exhausting experiences in my entire life and then I wrote a book about it. How long did that trial last? That trial lasted as I recall about three months. And so now you've written a book uh, entitled Tilted The Trials of Conrad Black. Um, tell me about this book. Well, I, I, I covered the trial, and before I went, I met with a publisher who agreed to, to, to publish a book. So I knew that I was writing a book during the course of the entire trial. And it was a very interesting trial from a number of perspectives. First of all, I found, although it was a fraud trial, you would think that would be, you know, dry as paint. It was, it was very <laughs> interesting. And of course, that was the challenge, you know, to write a book about a fraud trial. And the characters, I mean, Conrad Black you know, uh, Lord Black across Harbor, Barbara Mila's wife, the lawyers involved, Eddie Greenspan and Ed Jensen from Chicago, uh, the prosecutors, and, you know, led by Patrick Fitzgerald, who had just uh, finished a major prosecution. Um, I think it was Scooter Libby. And, you know, I mean, it was just, and then the judge was, was uh, and then, you know, we're in the show. I remember 
being on Fox News. I was on Fox News the day before the case. It was really interesting because it commanded a lot of attention in England and Canada. You know, it was like John Gomeshi in terms of media coverage, but in a Chicago courtroom. And I remember being on Fox News, and they interviewed me. It was this local Chicago show, and they said, "Who is this guy? Why is everyone <laughs> paying attention? We don't know anything about this." It was that was the introductory question, to, uh, you know, on this on this news show. But they caught up pretty quickly, and so, and one of the one of the interesting things, and I write about this in the book, is just the vast differences between the American criminal justice system and the Canadian. You know, and just to give you one example, stark example, there was a, a cooperating witness, David Radler, who pleaded guilty, who was one of the architects of the Hollinger scheme and uh, really was on an equivalent level in terms of culpability on, on the prosecution theory. And, um, and he, he had pled guilty, and he was the key witness, really the only direct evidence against Black's participation in, the, in this scheme. And it may, essentially, it was setting up this false scheme of non-competition payments, uh, which really weren't necessary and artificially... Uh, created and defrauded the shareholders to, to line the pockets of the senior executives led by Conrad Black. That was the, the essence of the allegation, and Radler was one of the senior executives. Well, in Canada, Radler would have pleaded guilty and been sentenced and then testified. Not in America. In America, he pleads guilty. The prosecutors call him, and they hold his sentence over his head basically like a puppeteer with you know the puppet on the string. Watch to see how he testifies and decide how beneficent they're going to be at the end of it and whether or not he should receive a sentence. Well, you don't promote truth by doing that. Right. You, pr you promote a script, and the script is the prosecutor's script. And so, you know, what is anathema, and by the way, this is being written uh, in the... In the um, in the inquiry relating to Carla Hamolka, it's actually in there. It's just not a feature of the Canadian justice system. If you look at the, um, the case in Stratford, the Rafferty murder trial, where the, you know the woman who was involved with him, she pled guilty to first degree murder, sentenced, and then she testified. That's the way it happened. So, and, and that's, there are a myriad of differences. And I thought that our our system was a much fairer system, and I wrote about it. And I also thought an interesting feature of the case was that just I, there was a paucity of evidence against Black when I really analyzed it through the lens of a criminal lawyer. And that's why the book is called Tilted. I just didn't see the case there because you had an audit committee, a, a very uh, respected, established people who had approved all these non-competition payments. So how could that be a fraud? At and, least on a criminal standard. Yeah, on a criminal standard, right. And, and they weren't alleged to be co-conspirators. They came in with halos over their heads. So it, it just, to me, didn't make any sense. And ultimately, I was largely vindicated because at the end of the day, what started as an $84 million fraud, then to a $60 million fraud, leads to Black being convicted of essentially one count for $600,000. Uh, and I would argue that even that was artificially... Uh, well, I just say that there were. I had problems with the Court of Appeals decision, even allowing that one count to stand, and the obstruction of justice relating to the movement of boxes. So, you know, I was largely vindicated in terms of my assessment of the case. What do you think uh, we, as Canadian lawyers, could learn from U.S. lawyers or the U.S. system? Well, I think that there, there. The, what I would say is, is that 
there are such substantial differences between the, the American criminal justice and ours that be wary of, of learning too much in terms of forensic practice. But again, going back to what I said, just in terms of use of technology in the courtroom, that's where we can learn because I think they're far ahead of us. So one case I, I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I know that this is a relatively recent case, um, and answer it as you can, and that was the case of Jacobson. Right. Um, so um, I'll let you describe it. Tell us what this case was about. Well, it, it, was, it was someone who, who pled, who had been involved in, in American charges. I was his Canadian lawyer. Uh, Marie Hennon assisted me with this case. U.S. counsel was ultimately brought in. Patricia Holmes, she just actually acted for Jesse Smollett. So she's very, I saw that, yeah. very prominent American lawyer. And, and, you know, just to get to the essence of it, there were allegations made about my conduct and uh, that I essentially had coerced this, this man to, uh, this former client, uh, and cajoled him to plead guilty, which was absurd and false. Um, but of course, I could not argue this in the public. Uh, I, I had the assistance of Brian Greenspan guiding me. It was a former client to be very careful, even as I am now. I'm very careful as to what, what I will say and can say. But I was certain it was, I was not going to let my good name and reputation be tarnished uh, by false allegations. Uh, I contested the matter. It was a civil suit. It was decided last July. Uh, in the Superior Court in Ontario, I was totally vindicated. That was before Justice Favret. And if anyone's looking for the citation, it's 2018 ONSC 4483, and it was released. Um, well, it was heard on March 28, 2018. Right. So it, it took it took years, but ultimately, I have total vindication, complete renunciation of every single claim made. There was a cost order made of $183,000, which doesn't go to me; it goes to Law Pro. And so, you know, it obviously is, is a distasteful experience, but um, I was not going to let it get me down or deter me. Right. If anything, uh, in some ways, uh, I ch- it changed my life for the better. I started swimming, and I became <laughs> a marathon swimmer, you know. Is that right? I mean, some people can turn to, you know, to, to, to uh, drugs and alcohol in despair, but not me. Um, I, my, my children will tell you I can hardly handle two beers. So I turned to mar- I did a 10-mile swim last summer in Algonquin Park and uh, probably in the best shape of my life. So, you know, I tried to, to turn something. It was obviously a very uh, corrosive, difficult experience. No one likes, particularly because it was in the public. And, you know, it's, not, it's, it's something that obviously you, you uh, want to avoid, but it was, it was unavoidable for me, and I just was determined to beat it. I did beat it, and I'm the winner, and that's, that's all I would say about it. Building upon that, and this is a question I ask a lot of our guests, is trying to strike that um, healthy balance, uh, not even necessarily a balance, but but almost a um, reaction to the stress of litigation. And you mentioned swimming. Uh, what benefits have you seen personally from that? You know, I, I would say, um, well, I, you, try to, you try to maintain a healthy lifestyle because, you know, I know that when I was doing a jury trial, my, I, it was like a switch turned off in my life. Nothing else mattered. You know, we're, we're so passionate, so consumed, we collectively, as an entity, but dedication to our clients uh, that we really become one-dimensional. I have to be wary of that because that can be dangerous to our health. So we always have to try to strike a balance. Um, you know, one of the things that I did is I became a writer, and not just nonfiction. I have published a nonfiction book, but I've uh, just finished a novel, and I'm just in the course of sending it out, and it's historical and has has a bit of legal drama to it, um, and and I, I found that to be just 
you know, just a great release, a, a wonderful. And I, I really loved, I learned that I have a love for writing and it's something that I want to continue during the course of my life. The other thing I would say is about collegiality. It's so important because we, we're essentially islands. We're on an island when we prepare a case. You know, some people have the benefit of being in firms, but for the most part, criminal lawyers are sole practitioners just by the nature of, of what we do. And what I would say from experience is I would encourage lawyers to be collegial, you know, to even just just to, to meet with other lawyers, to, to talk about cases, um, and and really just to make an effort to uh, to uh, to do that. What do you? Um, how do you achieve your goals? Is this? Are you a goal setter, or, or is it more serendipitous? Um, how do you? If someone was trying to replicate your successful career in criminal law, what advice would you give them getting into the practice? I, th- I think you have to be. Um, Regimented. I, I have printed diaries. I set up goals every day, weekly goals, but flexible and fluid enough to know that you know that it's not uh, etched in stone. That, that you're going to have to uh, occasion uh, be flexible enough to vary from that. So, so you you want to you want to set goals, and, and and not be over overly ambitious, and you know just try to to be realistic about them. Um, I think that's the best best advice that I could give. Stephen, what is something that you think a lot of people misunderstand about you, whether it's because the press has portrayed you a certain way or just being a criminal lawyer? Well, I always thought the, the, the people thought because I was in the media that I, I was uh, out of conceit or self-serving, and it was quite actually the opposite. I, I never wanted it to be about me. And, uh, but, you know, inevitably, when, you're on the, when you have a public profile and you're in the media, and I, I, I'm not doing that now anymore. Uh, but that's that's sort of an unavoidable um, stigma that you get. But the other thing I'd say is I have a great sense of humor, and I'm not sure if that comes through. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly has from our conversation, okay. so, but I, I, I hope so through the yeah. podcast. Well, I wrote my book with a lot of humor, that's for sure. And uh, wrapping up then, I, I'll ask you some questions about um, sort of the state of the law right now. What do you think is the largest change you've seen during your time and practice well it's the charter of rights i'm a charter baby i, I started with the charter you know i remember it, it was interesting because there were some judges and martha martin was the best example of this the you know the martin medal the probably the greatest lawyer and judge in the history of, of canada in the area of criminal law and he embraced the charter instantly and i watched this i remember you know i, I article for the crown law office the ministry of attorney general ontario i remember there was a black book how to deal with charter challenges <laughs> for prosecutors the big issue was whether section 7 would extend beyond procedural to you know to substantial substantial law and, and substantive law I should say and and um so clearly it, it's it's the Charter of Rights, and, and never think, you know, that we've reached, you know, the zenith, that somehow, well, all the charter arguments have been made. Absolutely not. I, I, you know, I remember we argued against the constitutionality of the wiretap provisions in my second or third year as lawyer, but there are always going to be new challenges, you know, particularly under under Section 24.1 and 24.2 of the Charter. I mean, that's the great difference to the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights essentially declared similar principles to the Charter. The difference is the remedies. Right. You couldn't do anything when you found a breach under the Bill of Rights. But now you can exclude evidence, stay charges, and end prosecutions. And that's the meaningful difference. What is a case that you would like to see reversed or tweaked from oh, the Supreme I, well, Court? Well, I, I, I have written a book, co-authored a book with David Tanovich and David Pachoco, Justice Pachoco, on uh, jury selection in Canada. 
And, and you know, I, this notion that you eliminate peremptory challenges, that we'll have to spend another hour on that one. But one of the gray areas I'm concerned about is a fence-based challenge, because I was one of the pioneers in, in dealing with that. And there's actually a Supreme Court of Canada decision that relates to some of the surveys that I created related to uh, sexual assault cases. And well, I, tell me about that history, because I, I do remember the story, and I think it's an important one now, especially in the age of Me Too. Right, and, and, and there's, there's no ability, there's no screening mechanism in, in jury selection in our country to deal with, with a fence-based challenge. People have this, this rigid, inflexible, immutable belief that someone's guilty if they are charged, he or she is charged with a particular crime. And I, I have an abiding belief that's the case. It's not a question that you can expunge it, you know, through, uh, you know, a challenge for cause process or that somehow people can be educated by a proper charge to the jury from, from a venerated judge. No, they'll come in, they have a determined view, and we see it, it's declared in some, by some people and as part of this Me Too movement. And, and I think that we're, we're essentially, no, we have no ability to know whether anyone on the jury or a number of jurors share that that inflexible belief, and I think we need to have a better screening mechanism. You know, I, I'm not necessarily saying adopt the American approach, but I think they're closer to get it with their voir dire approach, you know, than we are with ours. And so I think if one area that I feel most strongly about is I think we're very naive about human nature. <laughs> Our judges are very naive about human nature, and the way they've set up the scheme of jury selection in this country. So normally, I, my last question is, what is your elevator speech to the nation? But you're always on television anyway, <laughs> yes. so you have that speech routinely. But what's one of the favorite things Just, that you... Well, I would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've always studied Martin Luther King, Dr. King, and justice anywhere is justice everywhere. And secondly, as part of my Jewish religion, the notion of tikkun olam, which is the Hebrew words meaning um, to mend the world. And that's something that I always aspired to. I think it, it's my my watch uh, to do what I can in the minimal amount of time that I have on this earth to do everything I can to fix things. And and I know that the men and women, the lawyers, criminal lawyers in this country, um, share that view, share that belief, and that's why I'm so proud to be part of this poem.